Welcome to Lockdown With. Our guest today is Jacob. He is a biomedical sciences student based in London. And since the start of the pandemic, Jacob has been working in the intensive care wards of a London hospital. He shares with us his experiences. I also wanted to make clear that all of the views expressed in this video are opinions. However, all of the stories are real. Of all of the interviews I have conducted as part of this Lockdown With project, this one in particular is important. It really does provide a window into the realities of the COVID pandemic from inside a hospital. And it's not all pretty. But I hope from listening to this interview that we can all appreciate the work that is going on behind the scenes. The work that we don't really get to see. The work that NHS staff are doing on a daily basis to save the people that we love. But at what cost? I'm Rebecca and this is Lockdown With. Jacob welcome to Lockdown With. Thank you hello. Thank you for joining us I mean where do we start there's actually a lot we can speak about in this episode but I, I guess we can start with something that we can try and relate to you about which is the fact that you're a student um, and you're a biomedical sciences student so how did you start that and what's it like what year are you in tell us about it. So as much as it sounds great, I think it's rather a tragic story. I initially began my education with applying for medicine. So I got all my offers pretty much uh, to study at UCL, um, Brighton and Sussex, Keele and all of the above, but I missed my grades. Like many students out there, when it came to A-level results day, I was disheartened because I didn't get any of my places in the end and my backup option was biomedical sciences. I picked that specific university as I knew they had a formal transfer scheme into medicine. So how it works is that in your second year of study, if you've been consistently getting 66% or average over 2-1, they interview you automatically for a medical transfer and then your medical degree is four years rather than five years and you come out with two degrees at the end of it. So I am currently in my second year, um, upcoming exams next week, unfortunately. <laughs> and ho hopefully, fingers crossed, I managed to get the interview and transfer over into medicine. Amazing. I mean, you've turned quite, you said at the beginning tragic, but I mean, you've turned quite like a disheartening story into something that's quite heartening, if that's a word. <laughs> and I think that's a good message to anyone that doesn't meet their grades and still wants to get into medicine, because you're not the first person I've heard that had to take a different route in. So there's always an option, I guess. There's plenty of medics that start their career in the 30s, 40s. We've got people at our university and different universities that are much older than the usual undergraduate entries. So it's never too late to start medicine. And if you fail two, three, four times, you know, you might as well be able to get in on the fifth time. So keep trying. So you're in your second year now. Is it normal for second years to have hospital placements? So biomedical sciences is not a clinical degree. You 
do everything in labs. So you go and do experiments in labs, you do blood tests and all that stuff in labs. Um, and you do all your theoretical training similar to the medics, but you don't go and do the clinical teaching. So you don't go and get taught about patient histories and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you wouldn't find any biomedical sciences students in the wards as it's not a clinical degree. But if you were in second year med medicine, you would be on the wards. Okay, so this is interesting because I know that currently you are working in the, in wards, right? And that's because of COVID. So tell us how you've become involved in that work. So back back to March when we were at our first peak of the COVID. Um, our university sent us an email saying that the hospital is really struggling with staff and they'd like the students to support them. And they opened up roles as healthcare assistants for us to go in and help on these wards, support the staff um, by helping run the unit, helping the nursing staff do their job. As at that point in time, there was a huge shortage of staff due to COVID sickness. Okay, so, I mean, that was unexpected, I guess, for you and everyone on your course. How was that received by you? Um, surprisingly, I haven't seen many other biomedical sciences students on the wards. Um, I've seen about two or three others from my class, a few medics from our year and a few medics in the year above. Um, I mean, from my heart, it comes out that I want to help. I want to, you know, help in this crisis. I don't want to sit back home doing nothing. And I understand people don't want to go out and help as they may have a condition themselves that may put them at risk or they don't want to put their family at risk. Um, but hearing some of the comments from people on the medical courses saying that they've already got the medical place and they don't want to put themselves at you know, additional danger or they just they don't want to because they've already got the position, they became, they've become complacent. That was quite upsetting to somebody who's always wanted to study medicine and I'm taking every single step possible to learning new skills or trying to develop myself clinically. Um, it just came as a huge shock that people are so complacent once they've gotten their spaces. Okay, that's, that's also really interesting because I think as like a member of the general public, we don't really hear many stories about students being on wards. And I think, especially during COVID, this is what I mean, but. I, I'm aware that students have had to go on towards and I, I don't know how widely that was offered. And I mean, I didn't even know before this call that biomedical science students weren't normally like cl clinical during that kind of degree. So it is really interesting and in how maybe, I don't know, is there, you ask, maybe it's like an, an ethical question almost, should all the students be working or not? But I mean, I guess to move, onto what it would normally be like for you. You wouldn't normally be doing the clinical stuff. So how are you managing to continue with your course in general? So during the first wave, I took all my learning material and I did it all on my breaks. See, I stuck with doing night shifts and back then I was doing three, four, five, six night shifts a week uh, with a few days break in between. And that meant I didn't really have much time during the day study because I was sleeping so I took all of my revision materials and I was just there on my breaks or whenever there was a quiet period on the ward I just sit there typing away writing up my notes and studying 
but as well at the time I was going through my cardiology and respiratory modules and being able to see face to face what is going on in the wards and being able to link that to my lectures was very useful so in my lectures if I was learning about a beta blocker medication I'd then be asked by a nurse to go grab the medication and then see it being administered and seeing firsthand what that medication does so many people say that once you go into medicine all of your med school stuff is quite irrelevant that you learn most of your knowledge on the wards and I think this has shown me that I am learning a lot of things on wards and quite a lot of my exam knowledge came from actually working and that that's amazing so that's a great experience for you that's just kind of I mean I'm quite a spiritual person so you kind of say oh it's kind of like divine timing it's kind of it's just perfect exactly. for you so, so that's that's great you said at the beginning though because you want to transfer onto the kind of medical course that you need to be getting what is it 66 percent or a 2-1 so you've got that pressure already of having to achieve that for two years in a row but now you've got this pressure of the covid stuff on top and working these three four five six night shifts or maybe sometimes day shifts so are you still thinking you're going to reach your goal of 66 percent I'm currently on a 73% average from my first year. So <laughs> exactly. No, it's um it's quite sad that our first year is worse than less than second year. So I need to still work hard. I am hoping that my exams next week go to plan. I've dropped down to doing two shifts a week currently on our COVID ICU. Okay. I want to go back to when you were told that you have to work on the wards. Um and that was obviously back in March and that was our first peak so of, of COVID. So I want to know kind of your experience of starting your shifts on the ward and what kind of things you were doing, what you were seeing. I think you mentioned that we I had to start working with the wards. It was more of a volunteering opportunity. They labelled it as first. So this job was advertised as a voluntary experience saying we need help on the wards. And then only when I got hired for that position and I went in for my training they told us it's going to be a paid position and nursing and every other profession in the NHS is banded that the payments are banded so somebody on a band four payment is getting paid more than a band two payment I was initially set, told that I was going to be getting band three pay and during our teaching for that for that uh, job we were taught our basic observation skills how to take care of patients how to uh, manually handle patients, um, et cetera, et cetera. But we were told that most of our learning is going to happen on the job, as I'm sure it is for many other jobs. Um, it was quite a daunting experience. First of all, going into the hospital, we were all deployed into COVID ICUs at the time. And at that point in time in this hospital, there were many COVID ICUs, most of them makeshift. So the hospital had their own cardiac intensive care, neurointensive care, they were filled with COVID patients and they had to open, uh, they first of all had to close the cardiac theatres area, the surgery theatres, and they've opened them as a COVID intensive care. So you can imagine that these rooms weren't exactly made to house intensive care patient, let alone four of them per room. And I remember going in on my first night shift with one of my um, friends who also lived in my hall's accommodation last year, not knowing what was going to happen. 
So we went to the briefing where we got distributed between all of these intensive care wards and we were split up. I was the only person from our little school group going to that intensive care unit and I was deployed to the cardiac theatre section of it. And it was a very scary experience. We've heard all these bad things about COVID and how it's killing people. And here I am walking through a door that's had plastic shielded around it saying no entry, communicable infections, stop here, beware and all that stuff. Um, I was told to don on my PPE. That was the first time I was ever putting on PPE properly apart from the time I was taught it in the training sessions. Um, and the corridor had a huge line in the middle dividing the COVID area before you enter the rooms and the clean area. So I stood on the clean area, putting on my PPE, shaking because I didn't know what I was, I was doing essentially. And out came a nurse and helped me put on my PPE. She's like, yeah, you look great. Can't tell it was your first day or anything like that. And in I was, I opened the door to the surgery theatre and that was the first ever experience I've had with COVID, with intubated patients, with comatized patients and any sort of clinical work, so to say. And I said, hi, my name is Jacob. It's my first day here. And straight away, without anyone saying anything, the nurse goes up to me and she says, you need to go and do a deep suction on that person's lungs because they're choking on the secretions. I just stared at her right in her face saying, hi, again, my name is Jacob. I'm a new HCA here. I don't mind helping, but please can you show me how to do it? So a lot of the work was very learn it, look at it, be supervised by a nurse doing it and then help out as much as you can as in intensive care you need to have ideally one intensive care nurse to a patient but at that point in time with so many units opened and the hospital only having a set amount of intensive intensive care nurses they had to distribute them as you know as much as possible and it was already at the point of having one intensive care nurse to four or five patients and having a registered nurse helping out or a HCA like myself helping out in those bays to support the nurse that isn't able to do all her work by herself as she has to split her workload between four patients. But after that night shift, I remember coming out with sores all over my face, sticking to my PPE saying, gosh, like I learned so much in my night shift. And that night I lost my first patient. That was the first time I experienced death to be honest I've, I've experienced death in in the family before but never to that extreme of seeing somebody die right in front of me and I, I just couldn't comprehend it I just went home and slept just because I knew I've got another few night shifts afterwards so you don't really get to recover so you just sleep throughout your entire day it sounds like a major baptism of fire <laughs> because for sure I mean what what experience before your kind of first shift did you have any kind of first aid experience or any other medical experience like hands-on rather than just theory did you have any of that before so I did my first aid course a few years prior to that and I don't think you can count work experience as medical experience I mean I sat in a few open heart surgeries but I wasn't doing anything apart from spectating so this was a huge 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 learning spike 
it was such a learning curve. I came from only learning about ECGs in one lecture at university to staring at them all day long. Um, so like I said, all the medical experience came from learning it on the job. I came in empty handed and took the best of what I could from there. Amazing. There's, there's, I feel like there's so many questions from this um, in the sense that you, I mean, to kind of boil it down, you kind of went in as a member of the general public. Like, do you, do you see what I mean? I mean? I mean that with respect. I mean that, I mean, so I mean, during, after the first peak, we worked together at Thought Park, right? We were in the medical team and we were dealing with first aid things. And I think that was a great experience and we can, we can speak about that more. But I just oh my gosh I'm kind of I'm kind of lost for words because I think we un, I think a lot of people understand that we need more staff on the wards but I don't know how many people know about what type of students there are in the wards and what experience they've had in the past and I don't think it's a scary thing like I I think something to stress is that even though you kind of did come in as a member of the public but you're on like a medical theory course like that's I fully respect that but you are you are kind of supported and you were kind of shown what to do, right? Kind of supported and kind of shown, but I guess the NHS was at its breaking point and any help they could get was the help they could get. They had to do, make do with what they've got. If I didn't come and help that nurse that night, who knows how many more patients could have died in that room because you couldn't give them the care that they needed. Mm how how many other students were with you on your ward were you the only student uh, so when at the beginning when we had uh, four cardiac theatres loaded with four or five patients each we started off with having one hca or two hcas just dotted around and i learned all of my hca work which essentially was not supposed to be in the, I mean, it was supposed to be in the cardiac theatres helping the patients, but we were also responsible for stocking up the unit, making sure everyone got the equipment they needed from the storerooms back into, in, into um, the base. And I learned all of that from a fellow HCA who worked there for a few years before. And she poured her heart out into me, gave me all the training I needed. Um, and then only later when we managed to get more staff from from the school community from, from our uh, hospital i mean from our school we i started seeing familiar faces working with familiar faces and finally we got one hca's for each bay so you'd sit outside of the bay waiting for instructions from inside the bay saying i need propofol i need um this that i need this and that and all you do is run back to your little storeroom get it for them and if they needed help inside you'd go in then and help but that was only towards much later when they had a bit more staff. Were you ever like too scared, too put off to go back to your next shift? Were you ever thinking, you know what, I'm out of my depth, like, no. Or were, was it more, you know, even though I don't know everything, I, it, I am needed and I can't let them down. Like, what, where was your mindset at? I knew that I knew I was needed in the hospital and I had to come in. And that was evident, uh, especially when cardiac theatres closed, they just distributed due to all the other intensive care units. And there were plenty of them in the hospital. You'd come into work for your briefing and you'd be just given a completely different place you've never known before. 
and that just showed to the extent how bad it really was and of course I was tired I came from never doing a night shift in my life to doing so many in a row and I remember driving back home quite a few times uh, in the morning on the empty streets of London back to when people were actually in lockdown and they weren't going out on the streets driving across Putney Bridge listening to heart radio saying thank you to the NHS or um, applaud for the heroes and I just weeped for no other reason than being tired I just was so physically and mentally exhausted from working those shifts that I just cried for a solid 10 seconds stopped then had a song come on the radio that was Coldplay or something and that caused me once again to explode and I'd have a good 10, se 10 sessions of crying in the car on the way back home. And I just remember standing in the shower, staring at the wall, trying to just release of everything I've seen that day. And then know that I'm still needing needed in the morning. Did you find things like that then, like people on the radio saying like, thank you NHS. And what about like the, the clap for the, for the carers? Was that, was that really helpful during the first peak? All the thank you for the NHSs were heartfelt and lovely to hit, listen to. But working in intensive care, especially night shifts when my night when my shift started at seven pm and finished at eight am, we wouldn't hear it. We were in closed bays, and there's no time to even look at the clock to see that it's eight o'clock and everyone's applauding. So I didn't really necessarily see or feel anything from that. And even on my days off, I was just too exhausted to even look outside. I was just sleeping throughout the entire day and night. Okay, really interesting. Um, and one of the questions that we were gonna ask, I know you're, that you said you would be keen to answer is how through the pandemic, your job changed. So you had the first spike, it kind of lulled out and now we've got the second spike. So talk to me about, how things changed in the hospital, how your roles changed throughout the whole pandemic. All right, so at the beginning of the first wave, when I first went into work, you heard that I had to go into the bays and help out with patients. And later on, as the first wave progressed, we'd be more as a runner, like I said, restocking the unit and making sure that everybody's getting what they need. Towards the end of the first wave, when all the cases went down and all the intensive care units slowly closed. Most of my shifts were getting cancelled and most of my colleagues shifts were also getting cancelled as we're bank staff. So we're not necessarily permanent piece members of staff. We just look at additional shifts they have and book onto them. And we saw that five out, five out of every six shifts we've done or what we were meant to do were getting cancelled. So the workload severely decreased and it just showed that we weren't really needed anymore, which is fine. It was a good thing to see that COVID was on its way out and um, the hospital was kind of regaining its prior uh, abilities to treat people. And then when the second wave started, I went back into uh, one of the wards I've worked on previously. And as a HCA there, I was essentially involved with coming in on shift, looking at what we don't have and what we have, trying to distribute all the equipment, make sure the entire unit is stocked up, all the sto storerooms were um, all, all the stock was ordered for them, making sure we've uh, liaised with um, with the storeroom staff to come and restock our equipment. And then it was making sure that all the 
samples were taken down to the labs, making sure you're going into the base to help uh, with patient turns or helping out with breaks and doing observations on patients whenever there, there was like a nurse on break. Um, and then as our ward became more full and the intensive care nurses had to go to different intensive care wards that were being opened up around hospital, our job has now become more clinical. And remember when I was saying about the band pay, we were, from what I know, we were initially offered a band three pay for all the clinical work we were supposed to be doing as well. And then it was revised to getting a band lower as the hospital didn't expect us anymore to be doing any of the clinical work. So throughout the first chunk of, like throughout my entire HCA career in the first wave, I was only given a band two pay, but I was also doing band three work. And then once again, it was quite disheartening to see that once again, when everything is, you know, much worse because of COVID and COVID, COVID cases are soaring and the intensive care capacity is dwindling, that I'm once again doing way more than I was told I was going to be doing and not getting the correct payment for it. And to be honest, I don't really care about the payment, but it just seems quite unfair. So I don't care about it. Like I said, I'm going in for the experience of being able to help people, essentially. That's what I'm here for. I want to be helping people. Um, and now we've been uh, revised back to COVID pod working, what we call it. It's where we know that we don't have enough staff to cover how many patients we've got. And intensive care nurses are distributing their workload, once again, over four or five patients. Registered nurses or support nurses are helping by stepping in on some of the intensive care nurse duties. And HCAs are stepping in on some of the registered nurses duties. So everybody's working higher up. And this is being revised by the hospital as band five nurses are gonna get band six pay, band six nurses are gonna get band seven pay. HCAs get paid the same exact rates as we've always done. And we are having to do jobs such as restocking and making sure the crash trolleys are um, all safe and ready to go in, term, in, in case of an emergency. And upon speaking about the crash trolleys to a registered nurse, they were like, to be honest, even at the beginning of my nursing career, I was not allowed to restock, restock that crash trolley as it was too big of a responsibility. And I remember uh, one of the nurses in charge saying to me, why are you checking the, the, the crash trolley? Like, you, you shouldn't be doing this. And I said, I've been given the correct and adequate training. I've been shown how to do it. I've, I've seen many nurses do it and speak. Uh, I've been taught, I've, been, uh, I've spoken how to, how to do it. And uh, a few nurses have seen me do this. And if you go outside of the wards and see uh, everyone's responsibilities, it says, I have to do this because another member of staff won't be able to do this. And, and then the nurse finally understood that, okay, HCAs are doing more than they should be doing anyway in this, in this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting what you were saying about the payment, because I know, thing is, anyone in medicine doesn't really do it for the money. And, and you know, people can question that. They can say, oh, you know, doctors work private. They get more money by doing that. Well, you know, look, they've all got to, got to support their lifestyles and everyone needs to live. It's just... In society, we place money uh, and value on certain things. And 
I think this pandemic is going to make us look at where our values need to go and maybe question like how we run our society because you see obviously this is a really cliche one that we always hear about is the fact that you know businessmen get paid millions and millions but then you've got paramedics ops and nurses for example and even like HCAs and everyone else who don't really get a payment reflected of the work that they're doing um and I think that's a really important message that people need to look at it's something that I've been quite frustrated with personally and this is um obviously different than NHS work but when we've both worked together in the medical department we've we've seen this is obviously outside of hospital but we've seen seizures we've seen strokes we've seen all of these different things and we'd be dealing with it kind of on minimum wage but then if I get a job as like a copywriter I get paid double triple the amount for writing some words on a piece of paper when I've actually just help someone survive and I only have that on a small scale and I can only imagine the frustration felt by NHS workers so money is really important um so I really hope that um sinks home people understand but do you think that the general public have a true idea of what's happening in hospitals no okay I, I don't think people actually understand what's going on if they did understand, they wouldn't be going outside and meeting with friends. They wouldn't be thinking about going to parties. They wouldn't be just jogging with friends. It's so disheartening to see, especially when we're getting younger patients and patients with less comorbidities on the wards now. The youngest we've had in the past few weeks was a 26-year-old coming in with their mum and being separated to, into two intensive care units. It's really not sinking home. And as much as media is trying to get into the wards, they're not allowed to. They're, we've seen a few articles or a few um, few uh, pieces on the BBC with, with um, media recording things inside the wards, but you just don't fathom how bad it really is. We've been, uh, we, we've, in the past few weeks, I've not seen as, I haven't seen as many people die. Wait, let me rephrase that. I've seen way more people die in this wave than I've seen in the first wave. It's going down to the scale of we're having two, three, four crashes a night or upwards of four patients dying per shift. And especially in our hospital right now, there's just not enough staff to cover that. Even after the patient has passed away and we've done last offices, we've cleaned the body, we've let the family spend time with the, with the, with the patient we're seeing cues of we're seeing cues to take the patient down to the morgue and we're hearing that the morgue is also struggling and they're having to double uh their capacity yeah and i mean it's something you touched on with the media and i i was like i'm aware that there is a lot of things that aren't being publicized in the media and it's a personal frustration because of things that I've experienced for example when I moved to China and I don't have a bad word to say about China at this precise moment but people in the UK assume at the beginning of the pandemic people assumed China's not telling the truth um, but the UK is and I obviously was in China at the start of the pandemic then I came back to the UK and I returned to the UK to hear Boris Johnson tell everyone in the UK oh it's not that bad it's fine and I was like I've just been to China I know what it's like I've seen it you're not telling everyone the truth the information that was on NHS websites was out of date at the time and 
what was frustrating was I was having daily conversations with people who were telling me that I was wrong. The stuff that I'd experienced, the stuff that I'd seen overseas wasn't relevant. Boris Johnson has said it's all right. The media are saying it's okay. And I think what's happening now is also causing me frustration. The media aren't always allowed to go into hospitals, especially during the second part spike. It's kind of like there is a block on it. But the fact that we're not receiving the information is 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 causing a negative effect because it meaning the public aren't seeing what's going on. And I know that's frustrating for you as a member of the general public that I haven't seen inside hospitals since I'm relying on the media to tell me what's going on. I'm relying on interviews with with people who on the inside who can tell us what's happening, but we are not being shown that. The problem is, is that the public are making decisions like going, I'm going to go for a run with a friend. I'm going to go and get a takeaway coffee. I'm going to do whatever with their friends, but they're basing that on information that isn't wholly true. And they're basing information that isn't the full story. So as much as I agree with you, I'm frustrated when I go out and I go around for my hour of exercise and I see people with their friends and stuff that is incredibly frustrating for me. But at the same time, it's frustrating for me because I know what's going on in hospitals because I speak to a lot of people that are working within them. But the people in the park are going, you know what? I don't know if this is true. And this is where it touches on conspiracies and how when the media isn't allowed to report on certain things, it does make way for conspiracies and hoaxes and rumours. Um, a lot of things we've seen are videos of people going into hospitals and saying, everywhere's empty and I mean okay an example I went into hospital um, a week ago for a, a blood test I needed to get a blood test for something relatively urgent it's not necessarily routine and I went into hospital and it it seemed empty and if I was naive I would have gone you know what this COVID thing isn't real but this is what the general public are seeing unless they're going in with COVID or needing an ICU bed they're not seeing what's happening so what can you tell the public as in for example with these conspiracies what are some that you've heard that are completely untrue what are the most annoying conspiracies that we just need to we need to correct right now you have mentioned that media obviously isn't allowed into the these uh, intensive care wards and i've heard from people in the media industry that the nhs is plainly just saying no we don't have enough time to let you into the intensive care wards, which is fair enough, but it's come to the scale of, it's becoming a little bit scandalous how little we know about this. And I think it will show in the future that the NHS is possibly at fault of not showing the public of what was really happening in hospitals. And of course he said that goes on to conspiracy theories and I've heard all of them. I've heard that NHS uh, are covering up COVID. COVID is not a real thing. People are just dying of, uh, of the flu. We are working tirelessly nights and days holding people's hands as they pass away without their family just thinking to ourselves what on earth must be going through somebody's head to just think that or when I was in Sainsbury's the other day there was uh, a group of gentlemen in their 20s they were shouting at a lady and being verbally abusive to an older lady who asked them to put the face mask on. They were saying that, you know, COVID isn't real. I am not going to die of this. God is going to protect me. And that is it. And it, I am all for people having their own opinions. But if your opinion goes 
to hurt somebody or offend somebody who's working so hard and so so many hours it's just offensive just keep it to yourself what other conspiracy theories have you heard so obviously there are the ones where that it's a massive cover-up as in the government oh this is you know what this is a great one they're going oh there was a good one actually last night someone had written it on twitter or something it was like if we were meant to wear masks we would have grown we would have grown one on our faces um and then someone commented on it saying um i can't remember the name of it, it was like dave do you wear shoes like do you know what i mean but i think it's the fact that they a lot of people think that the restrictions that are being imposed on the general public are only there to control um and then there's a lot of fear around that um a lot of people believe that this is just the first step into harsher restrictions that will last forever in society and that they're not needed. Any views on that? I think that those views, I understand where people can be coming from, but people fail to realize that we're in a pandemic. You know, shaking hands with somebody outside of a pandemic is okay, but now during the pandemic, it is not. Once we come out of a pandemic, everything will be allowed again. But it's during this time where people are especially now spiking, like the amount of people with COVID are spiking and the amount of deaths are spiking. People just need to realize that this is a temporary restriction. Just go ahead and, I mean, just go on and take that restriction as everybody else is. Otherwise, you don't know who you're harming. If you don't put on a face mask in Sainsbury's, you may accidentally give COVID to an older lady walking past you just because you're asymptomatic and you're not showing that you've got any symptoms. You know, just respect that there's people out there working and trying to control this thing. I want to talk about the myth about, oh, I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 30s, it's not going to get me. And I think in the first wave, we saw that data kind of proved that to be relatively true. Yes, there were some people in their 20s and 30s in the first wave that were really badly affected. But obviously in the second wave, we've got a mutated version of the virus that actually affects people differently. Is it still true that if you're in your 20s and 30s, you are invincible from COVID? Nobody's invincible from COVID. That is the easiest way to put it. As much as we love to say that older people and people with comorbidities are at a higher risk of passing away from COVID or falling seriously ill with COVID. That is not true. There are more people in their 40s, 50s and 60s on our intensive care wards than there are people in their 80s and 90s. And we are now seeing, like I said, more people with no comorbidities and much younger patients coming into intensive care wards and dying of COVID just because they thought that they were invincible. And what about those people that come to you and they say, you know what, I don't believe in it. Because some people outrightly don't believe in COVID and okay, each to their own. But I I know we heard a story from Obi when his, when his um, interview comes out, he's mentioned someone that he treated recently. But have you experienced someone that's come in and gone, I just don't believe in it. I obviously haven't got it. We have had a few patients that don't believe in COVID and they continue saying that they don't believe in COVID up until the time they are intubated and put into sedation and then into a coma essentially. And that's just, it, it's, it's an opinion, like I said, but you don't need to harm others and aggravate others by imposing your opinion on them. 
And I, I also think that in the UK, because we've had access to an NHS for such a long time, so our na National Health Service, and it's free, apart from obviously we pay taxes to kind of fund it, but it's always kind of been in this country, you know what, if I get hurt, I'll just go pop down to my local A&E, I'll go like to the urgent care centre. For those people that are still using that mentality, you know what, if I go and break my leg today, I can go to the NHS, they'll give me an x-ray, put me in a cast, send me on my way. If I get into a car accident, obviously no one aims for that, but it's all right, I've got, I've got a paramedic around the corner. What, I mean, is that still the case? Can we actually have that view at the moment? The NHS is, a, the NHS is put there for us to help us. Obviously we are cared for from the day we are born to the day we die. But the NHS is an institution that has limited resources, limited amount of nurses and staff and equipment. We can't just rely on, you know, being able to get treated for anything and everything at any time we want, especially now where we just don't have the capacity to care for these patients. Our general intensive care unit is the unit that houses everybody's intensive care needs if they're not, if they haven't got COVID. And that is the only unit now that we have for them in case, you know, they do need the intensive care treatment. So the mentality of, you know, I can be as careless and carefree as I want just doesn't work. We just can't risk anything, can't risk it because we just don't have enough staff or equipment to treat that person. Yeah, I wonder if that mentality has also contributed to how bad things have got in the UK with COVID. I just wonder if people are like, because I mean, I guess I, I'm trying to think about myself because I'm the only person I can ask in this situation. Um, I'm trying to think, well, if I did get COVID, I'm like, well, yeah, I'd have the NHS. And at the moment, I mean, I said this to mum, I mean, so mum, she's high risk um, and she was questioning whether she should get the vaccination. She was like, should I get it? Should I not? I've heard a lot of rumours and obviously there's a lot of conspiracies around this, this vaccine. But I said to her, you know what, mum, like, I think in my opinion, you should consider really getting this vaccine because I know you're saying that if you had COVID and you've got a lung condition, you know you're high risk, you'll kind of go and rely on the NHS. But I said, mum, they haven't got any beds for you. Like they're not going to be able to help you. And I mean, another good point is, I mean, even not in a pandemic, you have to kind of pick and choose who you save. And I mean, mum, mum is a high risk person and she would be very severe. I don't know what her chances of survival were. I'm not asking you to then triage her and tell me what her chances of dying are. But I think people really need to take that responsibility on themselves and go, I need to reduce the number of ways I could potentially pick up the virus. I need to stop relying on the NHS thinking they're always gonna be there for me. And it also goes back to, it's not just COVID. If you need an ICU bed for anything right now, there isn't one just assume there isn't one try just to stay out of trouble for the for the time being is that the right kind of attitude i mean the government is trying to help us by imposing restrictions so people should be sticking to the restrictions because that ultimately you know puts them at a lower risk of getting injured or uh, i'm saying that you know people still get seriously sick heart attacks strokes they do occur and we just want to make sure that there's enough space for that rather than you know, silly things like people going to clubs and overdosing and requiring an ICU bed for that reason. It's just stay home, do your bit. It's only for a while longer and hopefully we can be out of this together. And I think you also mentioned that um, having to choose 
who we save. I have heard that quite a few times, um, so the media saying that we are taking people off of ventilators or taking people off of intensive care treatment just so we can free up beds. That has never been the case, especially in my hospital. We fight for everybody's life. Of course, we may not have the ability or the equipment or the staff to treat them as, as proactively as we want. We will not ever withdraw from treatment if there is a chance that that patient's going to get better. So the only times we put limits on treatment is when the treatment is harming them and the person is obviously not reacting to the treatment and there's no, there's no event in any foreseeable future that that patient's going to get better. No, I think that's a really interesting point. So thank you for explaining that and clearing up for a lot of people and, and me. So thank you. Um, I really want to move on to the kind of toll it's taking on staff, mental health wise. Um, it's something that I also spoke to Obi, the paramedic about. He was, and it's something that it opened my eyes. And I wonder if you've got an opinion. You probably do. It's just, we're dealing with a pandemic now. And you kind of mentioned, you know, in your first shift, you kind of went home, you were like, I'm not going to think about it, I'm just going to go to bed. But obviously, it is intense. And everyone has their own way of dealing with it. But what we can probably expect to see after the pandemic is although the pandemic will disappear, we're probably going to have an epidemic of mental health crisis within our NHS. What do you think? There's already a huge crisis within mental health of the general public from the effects of having to stay home and not having a you know normal life so to speak and the only way I can comment on mental health in the NHS is by explaining how me and my colleagues feel um, when we go rock up to a shift we don't act as if we're going into a COVID intensive care we're just chatting as if you know day-to-day -day sort of things what did you have for dinner what did you have for breakfast all that stuff and then Working on intensive care is very demanding, especially now where you have so many patients to care for, not enough time and not enough staff. So you're running around trying to save people. Uh, and me with my little crash trolley, pushing it into every bay one after the other because people are just very sick and sometimes, you know, emergencies still do happen. Um, and then throughout a night where a patient passes away, we, you know, get, now we're allowed to call the families in to an end of life patient. So get them in, allow them to say their goodbyes if the patient is still alive, or just to be able to say goodbye to the body if the patient has unfortunately passed away. And I think that is way more difficult to, to deal with than in the first wave. In the first wave, nobody was allowed into hospital, into our intensive care units, and you wouldn't have to deal with the family. But one of the moments that strikes with me the most is, a patient passing away and an entire very large group of a family rocks up and the wails and the screams coming through that room are the things that linger with you once you come off that night shift and let alone the crash bells and all the alarms when you go to sleep you can still hear them in your sleep you wake up hearing those alarms it's like you can never dissociate yourself from the hospital and of course these are events that usually happen on intensive care units, but not to this scale. You don't have an entire bay of patients pass away where only one in every 20 patients gets discharged to a ward. And of course, people are getting better uh, in intensive care. A few people are getting better and we put them 
into the regular wards and see them progress onto you know regaining their usual life but you don't remember these things you just remember the night where you lost five patients you remember the night where you lost a patient that you were speaking to the other week one day you could be speaking to a patient doing pulling jokes with them and then the next week you come into work and that you're cleaning their dead body these are things that are very difficult to deal with and nurses and myself it seems that we aren't looking at death as the general public are looking at death for us it's a job we've seen it before and we'll see it again so we do our job and we i don't know why but we don't talk about it previously in the nhs if you had somebody die in a ward you'd have a formal debrief for that patient where the staff involved in the care for that patient would get to discuss the feelings the reasons why but now we're seeing deaths on such a huge scale that i haven't ever had a formal debrief in my entire time working with the nhs we are just expected to move on as soon as that patient is out of the door we just don't speak of them again we just go to the staff room have our lunch talk about what's on telly and then go back to work and i'm sure this is going to i'm sure this is going to cause a lot of emotional strain on our staff i can see staff right now that are physically and mentally exhausted have a straight face on the entire shift when they come off the shift and we are told that there is support available for the nhs we have access to a wellness database but as much as going on a website um, and reading about how breathing is going to help me sounds great for the NHS, it may not work for me and my colleagues. There is going to be many nurses who debate leaving the profession, many doctors as well, and I don't blame them. It's been horrible, but we just fail to see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel because that tunnel for us is a long way away. The general public may go back to their ordinary activities out of lockdown but we will still be there with the patients that have been brought into us because of the carelessness of the general public the general public will go back to their normal lives spread the virus asymptomatically and then we'll have to deal with the aftermath again how how are you managing how are you dealing with it what are you doing to help your mental health I am trying to distract myself uh, as easily as I can. It seems like a really common way. For, it seems like this distraction technique is is a thing at the moment within the NHS. And it's not going to it's not going to be for a while. Like it's not going to be a good thing. Like distraction isn't good. You need to confront your issues. And as much as I'm revising for my exams, trying to distract myself, watching telly, cooking, and just making sure I don't have a second to think about the things I do in the hospital, it's already playing games on me. I'm irritable around my flatmates. I am, you know, in low moods. I, I can tell that this is there's something wrong. So I've gone out of my way and I'm speaking to my GP, trying to get uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, just to catch the problem before it evolves. And I want to say that to everybody. I was like, make sure you catch the problem of mental health. And this is a difficult situation for all of us, but don't think you're alone just go out and get help because it's not worth it and I think I think I, I really want to try and get through to anyone that's listening that still doesn't realize how serious this is and 
the effect that it's having on you guys. I, it's not that you are weak. Like the NHS staff are dealing with so much stuff. And I mentioned it in the paramedic one and I'll mention it again. The UK is fifth in the world for number of deaths and fifth in the world for number of cases. And we're behind the, the, the five, the four in front of us are stuff like the USA, India, Mexico. These are places with India has 1.3 billion people in its country. We have 67 million or something like that. That is the fact that we are so high up there is insane. And the, the fact that our NHS staff are having to deal with that proportion, the number is the proportion of the population that are being affected by COVID, which is the issue in the UK right now. The NHS isn't geared up to deal with the 3 million cases that we've had over the past year. Like, we, there's not, we're not geared up to that. Like, yes, we deal with the usual strains of flus and stuff, but this is way more. So what, what is it at the moment? We've got like 35,000 people in hospitals at the moment with COVID. That is insane. Like, we haven't got enough staff for that. That's on addition of all the other stuff that the NHS are trying to deal with. So I think, you know what? I, I want to go back to the NHS clap for carers. And I'm, I know that, uh, were you going to say something? I was just going to say that we are all so tired as the NHS and care workers and healthcare workers. We are tired. We want to go back to the pub as much as everyone does. <laughs> there is nothing we want more than a haircut and a pint in the pub or going out to a bar or club. But just let's all think about that long-term goal and we'll get there faster if we just listen and we all listen to the government and do what the government's telling us essentially. And the reason why I wanted to go back to um, the clap for carers and stuff is because in the, I mean, as a general, as a member of the general public, I mean, I knew it wasn't going to like, I don't know, like, like give you a massive push, but I guess I thought clap for carers, I thought that's a nice way of showing our solidarity. It's a nice way of showing that we care because I think the first wave, I think most people would agree that we really did care and we really did want to get across to the NHS that, you know, what, this is abnormal. You're doing extra work. We're sitting at home. Some of us are furloughed. We want to show our support. The fact that didn't come through to that, the fact that didn't come through to you is quite saddening, I think. And I think a lot of the public will probably agree with that point of view. And the fact that, you know, you're, you're not being showed support in the payment of this. You're not being showed support in, at the moment, any mental health care counselling stuff that should just be part of your job. You're not being shown it in debriefs. You know, it's just crazy. But I mean, you kind of did mention that listening to the radio and just you know thank you NHS that kind of broke through a little bit I mean but this second wave is insane I mean we've we've had reports of people outside hospitals that are saying COVID isn't real outside intensive care units and that's going to have a horrible effect on you guys if you can hear that stuff what can the public do other than I mean it's a simple message stay at home and don't get ill and just show support that way but is there a way that we can show our support to you guys like is there anything we can do for you because I don't know how often the public asks that question I don't know how to answer that question yeah. to be honest we like I said we want it to be over as much as everyone else does so like I said sticking to lockdown is the easiest way to do that we don't expect people to be bowing down and you know kissing our feet for job we do this is but shall we <laughs> I can arrange. Thank you. I don't. I don't think anyone wants that. We are just doing our job, and we just want to get back to a normal life. So that's it, really. 
I feel like we need, we're, we're, I said this in the last one as well, we are indebted and I, I don't know how to show that. And I think a lot of people are showing it through donating. I don't know if that's the best way of doing it. I think a lot of time people just throw money at things. Is it our place? I'm not really sure. I, I would love to find a solution. So maybe if you can't think of one now, then have a think, go away and then tell me. I'd love to think of a solution to just show people that are working in these intensive care units that we, we care because I think we do. And I think also the media stuff, I, I just hope that people can really see the effect this is having and the effect that it is real, because then maybe people will start making more informed choices. Exactly. Like I have mm-hmm. enough stories from intensive care to write a book. Like on some days I'm writing like a diary where I just write the date. Let me just read out one entry. Okay. On the 22nd of November 2020, so this was at the beginning of the second wave, back in COVID ICU, not enough staff, not enough PPE, not enough equipment, running out of beds. Watched a very scared 88-year-old woman being intubated. History of breast cancer cancer, and irregular heart rhythms. She was on optiflow but not responding well. Her stats continued dropping and all, all her arterial gases were all over the place. I thought to myself, are we doing the right thing by intubating her? These patients would pass away at home in fear or in panic or discomfort, but at least here they have some glimmer of hope. The next night, night of horrors, that patient just passed away. Yeah, that's, that's literally all it is, it's backwards and forwards of lovely patients coming into us, smiling and pulling jokes to us and week or two later just passing away and I mean this is you this is your kind of diary at the moment and what's insane about that is is how old are you 19 oh so people on the wards don't believe that not even the nurses so for anyone listening to this I want you to sit there and think back to what you were doing at 19 I'm gonna do that now what was I doing at 19 I think I just joined university I think that's about the right year isn't it I think that's been my first year at uni or my second year at uni um I can guarantee you that my diary wouldn't have read um night of horrors or whatever you've just said and I wouldn't have written about all the people that I've seen die um and I didn't have to go through a pandemic and I didn't work in the NHS and that is really important that was what I was trying to find in my notes what I was going to ask is the fact that how old are you because that is insane I try my best (laughs) that's all I can say (laughs) um I think that is all the questions I have I'm pretty sure we could sit here and talk about all the horrors that are happening during um, the lockdown period and all of COVID. It's not all horrors. It's not all <laughs> horrors. Like there are positives out of this. That like, you know. I'm, okay. I'm... Let's let's finish on let's finish on some positives. Tell me some positives. Let's leave this on a happy note. Well, it's a positive that I'm learning all these things that medics in my like subsequent year aren't learning. That I'm getting mm. all this clinical experience so early in life, being able to speak to patients and like there are patients that come out of this. I remember specifically going up to a patient that was on her way out of hospital saying, hi, do you remember me? And I remember speaking to her when she was, you know, fully comatized and sedated. And she goes to me, she's like, 
I remember your name. I remember your name. I remember your voice. And she's like, from when, thank you. From so. when she was in a coma? Yes. Oh my God. So she, she, yeah, she didn't know what was going on. Mm. So all these patients that are sedated, they've got goldfish memory of two, three seconds, but they remember small bits. And it's just so enlightening to see somebody on their way out home holding their, like, their husband's hand and just saying, thank you. That's the reason why we all go to work. Is that the best part about your job at the moment? As much death and sadness we see, there are cases, like I said, that do move on and do get better. And it's that what we're really, that's what we're really working for there. Incredible. Um, I just want to say thank you for your time. And thank you. <laughs> I think you've been incredibly enlightening. And I, yeah, I hope this cuts through to a lot of people. And I just hope if remember, if you if you ever come up with a way that we can show our support to the NHS that isn't clapping on our doorsteps or staying at home, which we all should be doing anyway, then let us know because I'll get a petition sorted. We'll go do it. <laughs> so thank you for your time. Thank, thank you. you for joining us. And yeah, all, we wish you everything for the pandemic. Hopefully it'll be over really soon and all the best. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Thank you. Thank you. After this call, I sat down with Jacob and I called my mum into the room. And for those of you who don't know, my mum is a holistic therapist and she featured in the first lockdown series. She is the only resource that I had to hand being locked down at home. But I did get her to sit down with Jacob and make sure that he was okay in her professional opinion. Us as the public think we have done our duty, that we have supported the NHS. We clap for the carers. We stayed at home for a few months. We changed our lives. We've done our bit, right? That's what I hear every day. But the people at the heart of the pandemic, our carers, our NHS staff, didn't hear or feel our support. Not all of them anyway. And they are about to go through, and already are going through, the hardest period of their career and lives. And hopefully they won't see anything like it again. But there is a humongous risk that they are about to form the largest proportion of the UK's biggest epidemic of PTSD and mental health issues. The very people who sacrificed and worked the most, arguably. We think we've done enough, but have we? Our pandemic heroes haven't been paid adequately. They've seen more death than anyone deserves to see. And I think we, as a nation, need to step up now. It's our turn. Clap for the carers didn't work as we expected it to. Staying home and restricting our lives hasn't worked as we all expected it to. Whether that's because of the government or because of section society aren't following the rules closely enough or because of mutated variants, we are not doing enough. We can sit here and argue or discuss why or whether this or that approach is the best or the right way or... You, we, us, can act on the information that we now know from this podcast. As Obi said in one of my previous podcasts, we are living through history. You are living through history right now. It makes me so sad to hear a member of the NHS, a friend, and to emphasise a 19-year-old 
talk about how extracts of his daily journal are filled with death. I'd only expect to hear that in a war. It depicts wailing and screaming and hostile crash bells ringing in his ears even when he gets home. When we ask ourselves, have we done enough? Have we done enough to support our NHS workers? Have we done enough to support our country? Are we doing enough? I don't know if we have. I can only hope that when when our NHS needs us, that we can help them as much as they helped us. That we can say that we cared for them just as much as they cared for us.